I spilled some water on my shirt here. A little bit of a drinking problem today. Well, we are continuing uh, this morning in our study of Galatians. But before I read our passage this morning, uh, let's do a little uh, case study today. This will be, be fun, okay? So our subject uh, this morning, his name is Josh. This is a purely fictitious case study. doesn't have anything to do with anybody that we know whose name is Josh, okay? So uh, Josh is struggling um, because he finds it hard to say no to requests. He's also avoiding advocating for his own needs. Uh, says, sometimes he says he's fine when he's actually not fine. Josh also avoids disagreeing with people or voicing his honest opinion. Josh often goes along with things that he's not happy with to avoid creating friction. Okay? Are you kind of developing a little bit of an idea of what Josh may be struggling with this morning? Uh, Josh also has a... a feels the pressure to be really friendly, to be nice, to be helpful or cheerful at all times, even when he feels that people are taking advantage of him. Josh is anxious about creating unease or standing up for himself. He is stressed out due to commitments that he's taken on, but at the same time, he's frustrated because he never seems to have time for himself. So what, what would you say Josh is struggling with? Fear of man, okay, anything else? May I have that maybe an issue? Let me read the passage this morning and see if it kind of helps us a little bit. We're in Galatians 1.10, and it says, uh, for, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So. Paul is saying, talking about man-pleasing. In our culture, we call that people-pleasing. Yeah, yeah, we do. Any, we have any people-pleasers here today? Anyone bold enough to say that's me? Yeah, all right. Good for you guys. Um, this is, you know, people-pleasing is not a medical or psychological diagnosis, but it is common in our, our therapeutic language. We know what that means, to be a people-pleaser. And today, Paul is defending himself by refuting uh, these accusations of being a people pleaser. And it's an absolute lie, okay? Anybody who knows Paul knows that he is not a people pleaser. The Apostle Paul who comes to town and he causes a riot. The Apostle Paul who, who, uh, who confronts people. The Apostle Paul who who sends a letter to the Galatians and the first and first Corinthians that are really harsh letters. The Apostle Paul, who endured stonings, betrayals. He was told not to go to Jerusalem at one point with a prophecy that bad things were going to happen, and he went anyway. He was imprisoned, and because he was imprisoned, he preached to King. Paul is the one who wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So people who knew Paul and heard these lies, these accusations against him, would have said, no way. But it's the Galatians that he's writing to. The Galatians who he just, 
He visited them. He just established a church there. He communicated the gospel to them. They, they received it by faith. And, and they, he leaves, and some people come along and question him. Well, this, this Paul guy, what do you know about him? Well, not much. Kind of new to town. Well, let me tell you about this Paul. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. And so Paul is feeling uh, that he needs to defend himself against these accusations. So last week, uh, Josh did a great job of, of giving us kind of this context of, of not only is he defending his, his apostleship, but he's also refuting this false gospel. I'm going to read from 6 through 10. Um, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Where am I? But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, so I say it again, if anyone is preaching a gospel to you contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And then he says, our passage today, for am I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So, Paul has just pronounced judgment upon these people who've come behind him as he has left Galatia and he's gone back to Antioch to his home church, and, and they have come preaching a false gospel. And he's, he pronounces this judgment, a curse upon them, an anathema. He says that they're damned to hell. For doing this. And that is strong language. Strong language. Now, this accusation, we don't have the accusation here, but it is implied from Paul's response. And here's the accusation. Paul's a compromiser. He's just seeking the favor of men. When he's with the Greeks, he preaches no circumcision, no law, because he knows that's what you want to hear. But when he's with the Jews, he's all about the law. He's preaching this popular gospel, but he's not telling you the whole gospel. And you guys better be glad that we showed up. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the whole thing. He's preaching easy believism. And I, I believe that this accusation that Paul is receiving is exactly why he unloads on Peter uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And we'll get to that as we study through through Galatians, but Peter is doing exactly what Paul is being accused of. He's showing favoritism. He's being a hypocrite. And Paul is confronting Peter, not because he wants to be right, but he knows exactly how Peter's behavior is going to be used by these same Judaizers, by these same people who are putting accusations against Paul. They are going to distort the gospel and vindicate themselves. They're going to say, see, look at Peter. Look at him. He's on our side. And we're right. Now, Paul is giving two questions here. The questions are, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Now, these two questions are very similar, right? Some people say that these are synonymous. But for me, they feel a little bit repetitious. For me, they, they seem a bit unusually redundant. 
Okay, and there's a lot of ambiguous and and ah, here we go again. Ambiguity. Thank you. Sometimes, if you're new here, you just need to know that sometimes I get to a word like apostolic, and I just can't say it to save my life. I'll say something like apostolate, and then Josh makes fun of me. So, thank you, Lanny, for helping me with ambiguity this morning. Last week, I said Greece and peace. Yeah, that kind of thing that you can expect from me. So, so in, in the Greek, there's a bit of ambiguity, and you can see this by just looking at, like, well, let's, let's just do this. If you have your Bible and you're open to that, who has something... Whose Bible says, for am, I seek, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Anyone have that? Okay. Uh, does anybody have the word persuade in there? Okay. How about favor? The word favor in there. Okay. See, so, so there's all these different kinds of words that are being used here. Okay. So how do we, let's just look at that word approval. In the, in the Greek, the original word is pathos. And it means to convince someone to believe something and to act on the basis of what is recommended. You could use the word persuade or to convince, right? So then I would read that and say, for, for am I now seeking to convince man or God? We're trying to persuade man or God. And it seems funny that he would be trying to persuade God. The Calvin... Often when things are, are kind of funny, I go to Calvin and say, Calvin, what, what, did, what did you think about this? Calvin says that the, the term uh, according to or kata in the Greek is sometimes understood. And he says, if you look at it that way, it says, for do I now persuade according to man or according to God? And I like this because it's different than, than the other question. It seems like he's saying more here right? Or am I now trying to persuade according to man or according to God? See, Paul is, de is defending himself by drawing a dividing line, a distinction between his opponents and their reasoning and Paul's own reasoning, which is according to God. That's what he's saying. He says, I'm not arguing from man's perspective like they are. My proclamation has authority. It is the authority of one who speaks for God, who's been entrusted and sent with a message from God. Remember, he said he was not sent from man or through man. Right after he says his name, Paul, not from man or through man. So what he is saying about judgment concerning the bearer of this false gospel is not born out of a fleshly jealous anger of Paul but it is a divine pronouncement with a divine authority. Makes me think of uh, Rich Mullins. You guys, I grew up with Rich Mullins uh, saying the Apostles' Creed, and he puts this, this chorus in there, and he says, and I believe what I believe. It makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it's making me the very truth of God. It's not the invention of any man. And this is Paul's argument. His plea and his judgment is not his own invention. He is now not persuading according to man. But as he has been from the beginning with the Galatians, he's bringing a message according to God. The second question that he asks, different, or am I trying to please man? Am I, he's saying, am I trying to obtain the favor of men by speaking according to men? Am I carefully crafting my message in order to gain the graces or the friendship 
or the respect of men by trying to win some kind of popularity contest here. And Paul stands with many great biblical examples. The patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles who chose to obey God and not care about what people thought. Let me just peruse the text. You think about Abraham leaving his homeland with no destination. Think about what his, his in-law said to him. Where are you going? What are you doing? Or Noah in Genesis 6. In Hebrews eleven seven, it says that he was warned of unseen judgment and he constructed the ark in reverent fear of God and by his obedience condemned the world. He was obedient to God. Or Moses telling Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. <laughs> that's, that's some boldness there. Or Caleb and Joshua defending the, the, their report against the other ten spies. Gideon tearing down the altar of Baal, even though he did it at night. Still, he tore it down, right? David not wearing the king's armor to go against Goliath. Or how about Jeremiah, punched in the face by Pashur, and he was thrown into the stocks for prophesying against Judah and Jerusalem. Man, that's a rough job to be called as a prophet. People just punch you in the face. They, they, they jailed him as well, left him to starve for faithfully proclaiming the message of God. Or Daniel 3.18, you guys know the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego telling the king, hey, we're not going to bow down to your idol. Or Esther, revealing her Hebrew nationality during a time of impending persecution. Nehemiah, not just a wall builder, but a reformer, calling people back to the scriptures. John the Baptist, calling out Herod in his sin. Jesus himself, preaching against the religious leaders of his day. Or Jesus before Pilate being silent. Says, Don't you know that I have the power? Put you to death. Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles saying to the, to the religious leaders, we have to obey God rather than man. You told us not to say his name, but we can't. We have to obey God. Or Barnabas, believing Paul's conversion in Acts, 29, or Acts 9, 27. Many of these stories you can find in Hebrews 11. They're, it's called the Hall of Faith in the Bible. A place where it's listed people who had faith, believing God and what he says over what everyone around them said. And this becomes the, a true mark of every Christian, that we have faith. In fact, Hebrews says that it's the only way to truly please God. So Paul, and am, I, am I trying to please men? Am I trying to please men? The answer is no, not. And he continues, he says, if I were still trying to please men or man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So three words I want to look at here, still, man, and servant. So still, meaning at one point, Paul was trying to please men. At one point, he thought persecuting Christians for men was serving God. But Paul says, hey, my eyes have been opened. And he who, be, who began, uh, and, and that's when, when his eyes were opened, he began to feel the opposition from men. 
So Paul has a past if I were still trying to please man. When he uses the word man, it's a strong statement. He's almost saying pleasing man is a polar opposite to pleasing Christ. Now, is Paul implying here that we don't have to please men? So, wives, do you not have to please your husband? Husbands, are you not to please your, your wives? As an employee, are you not to please your employer? Like, hey, I went to church this weekend. Guess what? Your quotas? <laughs> My job description? You know, I don't have to do it anymore. No. All right? Man is general, but it also is used in a limited sense. He's drawing a distinction between those who believe and those who do not. Those who, who are according to man and their gospel is according to man and, this, and, and Christ and the gospel according to Christ. Man is contrasted and set in opposition with Christ here. John uses this term world, referring to a world system in rebellion to God in the same way with a similar statement. He says this in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That does not mean that you can't love and appreciate God's good creation, right? No, he's speaking in a limited sense. He says uh, this in John 15, 18 and 19, but I am not, but I am not to love the world. Okay, Jesus, okay, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong place. Jesus tells his disciples, John 15, 18, and 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But for some reason, Christians want to try and please the world, but we're not of the world. We, this, this, Jesus said we're chosen out of the world. 1 Peter 2.7 draws out this distinction even more. I'm going to use the LSB here. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. It's saying that, that for those of you who believe, man, Christ is precious to you. But for those who do not believe, they have rejected Christ. You're not on the same page. You have different loves. Or 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Even Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is a division among men. And I would add to that limited sense of those who, who are for Christ or for mankind, this, this, that pleasing man can also be pleasing oneself, pleasing one's flesh or pleasing one's desires. Because when we please men, we gain something from it. There is a reward that we gather or we earn, and it is intoxicating. 
because we all desire approval. We hate conflict, and we have to be loved. It reminds me of Michael Scott, you know, in, in the office. I need to be loved, but this is foolishness. This is absolute foolishness. In the same way that we look at Michael Scott, we need to understand this, okay? It's foolishness. We will be rebuffed. No amount of compromise on our end will earn the world's love because we belong to Christ. Now, Galatians is written in, in, in the 49 to 50 range AD. Close to that is the books of 1 Thessalonians, written in 51. And look what Paul has to explain to the Thessalonians, right? So two years later, same kind of concept, same issue. And we'll look at 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 2 through 7. He says this to the to the Thessalonians. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who test our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness, nor do we seek the glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul came with, with boldness among much conflict. He, he says, we didn't come with error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. We didn't flatter you. We delivered the message of the gospel as one approved, one entrusted, speaking not to please man, but speaking to please God. No pretext for greed, no trying to attain glory. Rather, we were gentle among you, like a mother taking care of her children. So we've looked at the word still. We've looked at the word man. The last word, I would not be a servant of Christ. This word servant is doulos in the Greek. It means bondservant or slave. And I think slave has an, a particular, uh, it, 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 it's more that flavor of slavery. This is different from the word diaconus, which we talked about when we, I preached on deacons. That's an amen. Okay, Paul calls himself a bond slave. In Roman times, that usually referred to one who was held in a permanent position of servitude. They were permanently a slave. But for the, for the Hebrew, the Old Testament describes a really unique understanding of this term bondservant. If we go to Exodus 21, 5 through 6, it says, But if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, and I'm, I, I, I will not go out as a free man because I love my master. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. Paul, with this understanding, is offering himself to Christ to serve him out of his great love for him. He is willing to be bound permanently to his master. But make no mistake here, he is Christ's slave. He cannot serve another 
He does not voluntarily serve Christ. If he gets a little spare time here or there, Christ owns him. And that's the statement he's making. You might say, wait a second, Bart. You said two weeks ago that Galatians was a letter with a theme of freedom. And all I'm hearing is slavery from you this morning. Let me be clear. Freedom for humans. Freedom from you and I is not to be free of a master. Not. Freedom is about which master you get to serve. Only God is truly free because there is no one higher or greater than him. Remember my, the story I told about my friend Mark who heard a preacher preach a message saying, you're either going to serve sin or you're going to serve Christ. You're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to Christ. And Mark got mad and he said, no, I will not be a slave to anyone. And he told his friend, I hate that guy and I hate his message because I am not a slave. And his friend wisely said, take a week and see if you can not sin. And Mark said, in two days, he called his friend and said, I need Jesus. I am a slave to sin. I want to be a slave to Christ. I want to be set free. This is the point that Paul is trying to make. I am an apostle of Christ sent by him. It wasn't even my idea. He greets every, uh, the, the churches of, first, uh, of Corinthians, in First and Second Corinthians, he greets the, the church of Ephesus, the, the church of Colossians. He greets uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy. Five out of his 13 letters, he describes himself as an apostle by the will of God. God was the one who called me to this. I serve him alone. Listen to what Calvin said. Those who hunt after the applause of men cannot serve Christ. Okay, 25 minutes in, we finished our exposition. Let's move into application, all right? So um, this, is, this is Paul's defense on an accusation, right? So we want to look at it that way and understand it from that perspective, okay? But my question is, is there are principles here within what he's saying in his defense that we can use, that we can apply to our lives? And what would that principle be if we were to construct one? Um, and also with the understanding that none of us are apostles, right? None of us can claim that, right? But as, as servants of Christ, as slaves to Christ, how can this passage instruct us? Let's do a little multiple choice today, right? Everybody loves multiple choice. Okay, A, application, the principle. Servants of Christ don't please men. A, okay, B, Servants of Christ often offend the world, and that's just the way it is. We can blame the offense of the cross. Not our fault. Or C, don't be a man pleaser. Stop worrying about how other people feel about you. Just leave, live to please God. D, all of the above. E, none of the above. Anybody want to vote? Who thinks D? What was D? All of the above. Okay, some of you are getting really excited about where this is heading. But before we get too far into that line of thinking, let's look at what Paul says in his other letters to make sure that we're understanding him correctly. Because the, the, these letters were written after Galatians, but it seems like this topic, like I showed you in 1 Thessalonians, of man-pleasing 
warrants more discussion. People keep wanting to, to ask Paul about this. So he writes to these churches. And so let's look at those other passages. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And this will kind of go, what is happening? 10.31. We're familiar with the first part of this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Anybody ever memorize that one? Okay. What does he say next? I don't know. It says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul. I just feel like you're just playing with us now, right? Because you just said, just as I try to please everyone in everything. Okay? Or let's go to Romans 15, 1 through 3. Something, he says something similar here. 15, 1 through 3. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them who reproach you fell on me. Now he's bringing Jesus into this and saying Jesus did not please himself. But he, he qualifies the pleasing, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Oh. And he says, we are to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves for, the, for our neighbor's good to build him up. Here's maybe an example of what Paul is talking about. And this is kind of a controversial thing because we'll find uh, that circumcision is a big deal. This is what Paul is saying is the false gospel that these, these uh, false teachers are preaching. And he's saying they're telling you you need to be circumcised. Well, if I, if I go over to Acts 16, 1 through 5, and we understand that, that Galatians was written uh, shortly after Acts 14, and the Jerusalem Council happens in Acts 15, and as a result of that, Acts 16, right at the beginning, says, Paul also came from Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers, that is Timothy, at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, why would he do that? If he's making such a big deal about circumcision to the Galatians. Well, from this passage, we know that Timothy's mom is a Jew, which makes Timothy a Jew, right? But his father was a Greek and didn't circumcise him, which makes Timothy not a Jew in the eyes of Jews. So Paul is, is inviting Timothy to be his disciple and to go with him on his 
missionary journey. And, and if you read Acts, everywhere where Paul goes, the first place he drops in is the synagogue. And he argues and he, he, he is pleading with his countrymen that they would receive Christ, that they would understand the new covenant. Now, if he brings Timothy along in this journey, seeking first to go to the Jewish people, his own countrymen, Paul knows that that's going to be a hindrance for them. So he encourages Timothy to be circumcised, not to earn the grace of God, not to adhere to the law or tradition. Timothy needed to be circumcised to remove any hindrance for the Jews to receive salvation so that they might be saved. Okay? Now think about this. If we were to send some of you, and I I pray that this happens, on a missionary, to be missionaries in a foreign country, to go to literally to the ends of the earth into different cultures, you would be required to lose certain freedoms that you have here, to undergo certain hardships in order to communicate the gospel without offense. You would have to remove any hindrance to go to those lost people. We balk, you know, at conversations about women having to wear a head covering in church. But ladies, would you wear a head covering to share the gospel with Muslim women? Maybe not even in a Muslim country, maybe here in America, to share the gospel with a Muslim woman. Or men, would you be willing to give up bacon or pork for good because you can't find it in those cultures? To go and live and share the gospel in a Muslim country? Would you be willing to to be jailed to share the gospel with the incarcerated? Would you be willing to risk infection to share the gospel with the quarantined? Would you give your money or your livelihood, lose your job? Would you move to the third world? Would you move across town to go to a different church that we're planting? That would be hard too. Paul is willing to endure hardship and loss for the salvation of men. And apparently, Timothy is too. Now, I'm going to say, this takes discernment. Okay, What is required of you? This is the question. What is required of you? What's required of me to be a light unto the gospel, to be a city on the hill, to remove anything that's blocking that light from shining into the darkness in our workplace, in our neighborhood. It's going to be different for each one of us. But as, as God calls us and sends us to people, it will require sacrifice so that they can hear the gospel. Are you willing? Are we willing to do that? So the question is, is the mission of the church to please men or is it to please God? And here's the question that I've, I've I, I hate this question, right? But I've heard this so many times. Uh, Chris and I came from Seattle. So uh, in our ministry time there, here's the question that, that was often posed to me. Is the church for the world? Or do you see the world, or do you see the church as against the world? And I hate this question because it's a trick question, okay? It makes you choose between two ditches that are on each side of the road to fall into, right? The answer is yes to both. The church is for the salvation of the world, and it stands in opposition to the 
to the world's rebellious stance against God. It calls them out of their sin. It calls them to serve the living God. So ditch one, right? And we re- Reformed Christians, this is, this is hard for us. I mean, this is where we fall, okay? Because we can be stand- standoffish and not engage with the world, right? Josh talked about last week how we elevate our own theological acumen and condemn everybody else who doesn't agree with our theological stance. We're really good at our orthodoxy, but our orthopraxy is terrible, right? And, and I've, got, I've got charismatic friends, and we disagree on cessation or continuation or full-on, you know, the Holy Spirit is, is doing all kinds of crazy things. But they're sharing the gospel. And often I'm convicted because they look at me and they go, who are you sharing the gospel with? Are you a hyper-Calvinist? You'd say, no, I don't believe that. But functionally, you really act like that because you're not telling people about the gospel. That's a really convicting place. Or we tend to stand with a moral high ground, which makes us unapproachable and unfriendly towards the lost. I'm not talking about compromising our morality, but Jesus, without sin, was a friend to sinners and spent time with them. He loved them. And we should imitate him and show the lost how much he loves them because we're willing to go to them. I'm not saying it's wrong to be serious about our faith, but we need to take seriously and be sober about looking at ourselves, about how unrelatable and aloof we might seem. While I was in, I'm even, I don't want to share this verse, but it's in the Bible, okay? It's it's so misused. Um, I'm going to 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Okay, I actually have PTSD from from this verse uh, and how some people have used it. But I'm going to use it because I think it's good. For though I, here it is, 9.19. For though I I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law, meaning the Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Okay, like I said, there's part of me that really struggles with that because the second ditch, right? This verse is misused to say that Christians should remove any offense and accept into the church homosexuality, gender ideology, including women pastors, racial ideologies, abortion as health care, or just plain sin. We just need to accept it. People use this verse to say that, that at the very least, we shouldn't bring sin up. This verse is not a license to sin, nor is it any way for us to remain neutral 
or avoid offending and safeguarding our own fear of rejection. There is a way to please men without compromising truth or the gospel in order to bring salvation to the lost. We need to be, we need to be smart about this. We cannot remove the offense of the cross. But how can we up our game? What do we need to sacrifice to be effective ambassadors for Christ, pleading with men, be reconciled to God? This is Paul's motivation. It's not for his own gain. It's not to be liked or to be popular. So here's the final principle that we can apply. You ready? And this convicts me heavily, heavily, and I'm a pastor. And I want us to feel the weight of this. We are free men, free from the law, although we live by it because we are joined to Christ and live to please him in all things. Therefore, we do not shrink from offending men with the truth, nor from pleasing men for the sake of the gospel in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. We are free men, free from the law, although we live by it because we are joined to Christ and live to please him in all things. Therefore, we do not shrink from offending men with the truth nor from pleasing men for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Martin Luther says this. I'll, I'll finish with this. A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. And a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. It's a contradiction, but both are true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you how you minister to us and you give us wisdom. Lord, we want wisdom as we, as we engage with the lost. And Lord, I pray that you would be calling men and women this morning to be faithful to every opportunity, every divine encounter that you would give us. And I'm praying for myself, Lord, as well, Lord. It's hard to be courageous. It's hard to be bold. But Lord, people are dying. And, and you love them, Lord. We're grateful, Lord, that you would use us as a means to salvation. You're the one who secures it. You're the one who, who has established it before the world began. But Lord, you use us as a means for that. We get to be the, your ambassador. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. Make us good at it. We need help. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.